the first Good Friday has dawned over a troubled city of Jerusalem. During the night, great evil has already begun. The Lord has been seized. He's been hurried to the house of Caiaphas, and he has been tried in secret and in injustice. Lying witnesses have been bribed to produce false testimony. Wicked and shameful charges of blasphemy have been laid upon the sacred head. Honest men who should have been there, like Nicodemus, have not been invited. And a cruel and shameful judgment has been passed upon the Lord of all things. He has been spat upon. He has been beaten. He has been insulted and abused. The dignity of the King of Kings has been dragged from the house of Caiaphas finally to the palace of the Roman governor. For after the shameful sentence of death is passed upon him, the Jews admit that they have not the power under the Roman government to carry out this sentence. And so they hand him over to another. And so it is that as dawn breaks, the Lord is standing there before Pontius Pilate in the governor's palace. And the strange conversation unfolds between him and this man upon whom the greatest judgment in history lies. What sort of a man is he? He is a reasonable man. He's an intelligent man. And he is a coward. He fears the judgment that he knows he should give. He fears also the demands of his conscience. For even the natural law teaches him that there is no guilt in this honest and innocent man who stands before him. The Lord has said to him that he has come here for only one reason, to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, the representative at this stage of the world and of its powers, says to him, what is truth? A question that resonates down the centuries. And people seek the answer in all sorts of places, in indulgence, in violence, in the domination of others, in political theories, in pure entertainment. But in fact, the answer was standing before him. Before every philosophy, before every idea, truth had a face and a name and an imperishable presence. But he, of course, could not see it. Fearful he is of the words he's about to pronounce. And so he seeks to evade them in every way possible. He thinks he sees a way out. So he sends the Lord off to be judged by Herod, who was in town at the time. But Herod sends him back. He offers an alternative. I will free a prisoner today. And as substitute, he proposes the most unreasonable and ridiculous candidate, the cruel murderer Barabbas, the rebel. But in their malice and hatred, the crowd of the high priests and the leaders of the people choose Barabbas. They would rather have a criminal like that free in their midst than the innocent and holy one.
Finally, Pilate decides to try to satiate their bloodlust by sending the Lord, innocent as he is, off to be scourged. And so it begins the terrible, terrible scourging of the Lord. The dreadful whips laid upon the sacred flesh with their cruel hooks that tear at his skin. And those who have seen the Shroud of Turin will be familiar with the great image of our Lord upon it. But what they sometimes do not see so clearly is the back where the sacred body lay. The cloth has been drenched with blood. The body was torn to pieces with innumerable cuts. The suffering must have been indescribable. And as if that were not enough, now a cruel crown of thorns is pressed down upon his head. And the thorns pierce his flesh and scrape against his skull. And a mocking reed is placed in his hand as if it were a scepter. And a purple robe cast over his shoulders, already themselves rags of human flesh. And the Roman soldiers spit at him once more and strike him in the face and kneel before him, Hail, King of the Jews. And it is in this condition that he's brought back before Pontius Pilate. What an image it must have been for Pilate to have seen. So horrific that he brings him out and shows him to the crowd, Is this enough? Are you satisfied? Yes. Behold the man. Look at him, says Pilate. Will this do? But of course it will not do. Because sin can never be satisfied with more sin. Evil can never satiate itself. It desires ever more, for it corrupts the soul. It corrupts itself relentlessly. It can only ever be defeated with love. And so it is that the crowd simply scream for more and more blood. Crucify him! Crucify him! And at last, Pilate realizes no substitute will do. Shall I crucify your king, he asks them. And it is at this point that the leaders of the Jewish religion and of the people utter their final apostasy. We have no king but Caesar. And there it is, the last secularization of their religion. The authority of the law, it means nothing now. The Torah, the scriptures, the words of the prophets and of the patriarchs all have fallen to dust. The words of the Ten Commandments themselves, thou shalt not kill, forgotten. Thou shalt not bear false witness, abandoned. And all that is left now is the will to power of these godless and secularized worldly men. We have no king but Caesar. So be it. Their sentence they have passed upon themselves. And so the Lord is dismissed and sent out to be crucified. And at last the cross is laid upon his back. It is an ancient tradition of the church that the sacred vestments of the priest very often carry a cross 
on the front and on the back. And these two crosses are a reminder to the priest of his duties and of his vocation. For the cross before him calls him to remember always his own sins, his unworthiness, his need to expiate themselves. And the cross upon his back, that is the cross that he bears for others. There are the sins of his people for whom he offers the daily sacrifice of the Mass. That is the cross he bears to bring them to heaven. Our Lord has no cross of his own except the cross of the sins of the people, and he bears it upon his back. We can never imagine the weight of that cross, for it is not merely a cross of wood. It is a cross of all of the sins that have ever been committed. It is the burden of all of the pain that has been poured out into the world through human wickedness and frailty. And not just the sins of that day, but those from the dawn of man and that will continue right up until the end of time. An incalculable burden, a horrendous spiritual suffering. This is what the Lord is bearing on that day. How can mere flesh and blood bear such a burden? And yet he does. And he grasps the cross willingly. And so it begins, the way of the cross. And those who would follow the way of the cross will see it marked out through the streets of Jerusalem, an ever-increasing trail of blood upon the ground, pouring down upon the wood of the cross and leaving its mark through the paths of the sacred city. And around the Lord there will be not just the pain of the weight of the cross and of the brutalization of the Roman soldiers who strike him repeatedly and abuse and mock him, but also of the crowd, sneering, hurling insults, hurling objects at him. And yet, not all of them are so. For many are still with him in their hearts and look upon the scene with horror and incomprehension. How could this happen to the one we acclaimed just a few days ago as the king, returned to the royal city? And there are some brave ones who even penetrate the cordon of the soldiers to offer him comfort. And in first place, of course, who but his blessed mother? For is her vocation always to be present to him? And even if her speaking part in the life of her son has come to an end, still she is there. If you put the four Gospels together, of course, Our Lady speaks seven times. Seven times the Lord also speaks from the cross. Her last, her most famous, perhaps, is her instruction at the wedding feast of Cana. Do whatever he tells you. It is her testament to the ages, and with that she falls silent. And her silence is maintained even on Good Friday. No word that we know of passes her lips. Heart speaks to heart and no more. No words could suffice for this meeting between mother and son. But she is not alone. Other hearts also are moved with love for the Lord. And a woman comes from the crowd and presses her veil against the sacred face, disfigured with blood and sweat 
and dirt and bruises. And as she draws back, there is the beautiful image of the sacred face imprinted forever on her veil. The pious women of Jerusalem also come to console him. To offer what consolation there can be amidst such agony, such misery. And so he continues on his way, falling over and over again until Simon of Cyrene helps him with the cross, until eventually they reach Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary. And there, the intensity of the pain is increased, and the vestments that he's been wearing are torn from him, although they must have adhered to his flesh by now and reopened the wounds as they are torn away. And now his arms are stretched out upon the cross, which he's carried. And cruel nails are beaten through his wrists and through his feet. Why is such a thing necessary? This was not normal. Why such savagery? Why such cruelty? There is a demonic element to all of this. Satan himself is roused to wrath against the chosen one of God. He doesn't understand the gravity of what he's doing. And in that will be his own undoing. But all throughout the day he has urged on malice and hatred amongst all of those ranged against the Lord, and he is not finished yet. And so finally the cross is raised up. And the prophecies are fulfilled. And the Lord's words... When I am raised up from the earth, I will draw all things to myself, are finally fulfilled. And here we are. Lord, draw us to yourself. We want to be with you and nowhere else. Such is the power of the cross. We know that it can draw us to you. Should you will it? And should we cooperate with it? We want to be nowhere but with you and forever. Never let us be separated from you. Let the cross be our path to heaven. In the great art galleries of the world, there are countless representations of this scene, and they show all of the elements we're familiar with. The Lord there on the cross, our Blessed Lady and the other women, St. John at the foot, the pious women who attended to him slightly off, but then there are others as well. And the others are in little groups. And according to the piety of the artists, they've understood. These are groups of people simply in conversation, chatting amongst themselves with their backs to the cross. The greatest moment in human history is occurring, and they don't even notice. They don't care. You see, there are three groups that day. And all of us, as the centuries pass, will end up in one or other of them. We can be with our Blessed Lady, with St. John, with the pious women at the foot of the cross. We can be among those who love the Lord and will not be parted from him. We will be faithful to him. We understand there is a price to be paid for discipleship, but we will pay it. We love him. We understand what he has given to us. 
what he has done to our life and to our world. We have taken on the name of Christian and we will not give it up. We will be sincere. We will be faithful. Then there is another group. They also are Christians. And we might find them with Peter and the other apostles. They also loved the Lord. They were interested. They stand for very many people today. They know that the religion is true. It is attractive. But it has a price. It, it is to be had at a cost. And they don't wish to pay the cost. Religion for them is more a cause of comfort. It is a thing of therapy. But the harsh realities of discipleship are not for them. They shrink back at paying any price, any cost, how much they miss out on. And then there is the third group. Those people standing in the little groups in the distance. What do they see? They're not interested. It's the supernatural world, it means nothing to them. Right and wrong, they don't care. The purpose of life, it's less than a mystery. The only thing that matters is their own entertainment. They are the pagans, not even worshipping a god made of wood. They worship a god within. Insofar as they worship anything, they worship themselves. All of us in the end will come down to membership of one or other of these groups. But the cross has been raised up and the Lord is raised up upon it and he is drawing all things to himself and we have only to join to be part of it. And so the hours pass and finally the moment comes for the Lord's death. And by then he has already committed the church on earth in the figure of St. John, into the care of his mother. And he's given his mother to all of us as well, the most priceless gift. It is consummated, he says. And finally, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. And at last, the Lord's head falls and the price is paid. No more terrible thing has ever happened in human history. We can never, until the day we reach heaven, come close to appreciating the gravity of what we have done, our sins, the true evil of sin, sin to which we have become so accustomed, sin which is hidden from us. If it were not hidden from us in its full gravity, of course, it would kill us outright with its dreadfulness. The price is paid on that day and at that moment. And the Gospels recall that a terrible earthquake occurs at that time. And that the veil of the temple itself is torn from top to bottom to the horror of the priests watching and by the hand of God Almighty himself. And the tombs of the dead are opened and the dead walk through Jerusalem. The angels in agony the earth in darkness. What can ever come close 
to bring us an appreciation of that day. What heart can be unmoved by this terrible price that has been paid? Who can understand the gravity of this? But let us turn to that little group there at the foot of the cross. Everything else is finished now. There is nothing more to be done. There are no more words to be said. There is only sorrow. And so the holy men Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come, they take down the body of the Lord, they prepare it for burial. It is laid in the arms of Our Lady. Why must she suffer like this? What has she done? Perhaps our minds turn to that question that people ask down all the centuries. Why does anyone suffer? Why does God permit suffering, even to the good? We understand. He permits suffering so that he may bring a greater good out of it, if we cooperate with him. And he permits suffering also, so that we will understand that this world is not our home, that this is but a brief moment in eternity, and that we are not made for this place. We're made for another place, a better place, a beautiful place where there is no suffering, and where we will be with him forever. That's our true home. And if every possible agony that could be imagined could be suffered in order to earn it, then it would be the best of bargains. In the meantime, suffering will come our way, just as it comes our Lord's way, and even our ladies. But the reward will far surpass all of that, and in heaven one day the memory of those pains will be gone amidst the joy that remains. All action ceases. All words are gone. And from this point onwards, the stone is rolled across the tomb, and all that is left for us, as it will be for us from now until the moment that death comes to close our own eyes, will be the task of the faithful in every age of difficulty and of persecution to remain faithful to retain our hope, to watch and to pray. <laughs>